singularity. Hello everyone and welcome to another edition of Singularity One-on-One. This is a special Christmas edition with my guest uh, Lincoln Cannon. Lincoln is uh, not only a software engineer uh, with a degree in philosophy and uh, Masters of Business Administration, but he's also the president of the transhumanist uh, uh, Mormon of the Mormon Transhumanist Association. <laughs> the mouthful. It is, it is. Um, and so uh, the, the conversation today would uh, gravitate around uh, the topic of religion. Um, we are just a couple of days before Christmas, and I thought that would be relevant to, to many of us. Uh, however, uh, to be more specific, I propose to turn this into a sort of a discussion or a debate. Uh, and the, the topic more specifically is... Are religion and science mutually exclusive or complementary? Now, before we jump into the discussion, let me begin um, by saying that um, this is the second uh, conversation that I have with Lincoln. Uh, the first time uh, I really enjoyed having him on the show, and his message was, reach out to religious transhumanists. Now, I want to stress that despite of everything that I'm planning to say, I very much support Lincoln's message, and I do believe that uh, uh, we have to support uh, and reach out to religious transhumanists and, and religious people in general and try to have a, a dialogue more often with them rather than not, because I believe a lack of discourse uh, simply creates more polarization and vilifying of each uh, of those points of view, and, and that ultimately doesn't lead to anything good. Now, having said that, let me open our uh, discussion on um, whether religion and science are mutually exclusive or complementary. So, Lincoln, um, first of all, welcome to Singularity One-on-One -on -one again. Thank you, Nicola. I'm really happy to be here. I'm happy that uh, you're back here again. Um, so, Lincoln, let me lay out my personal biases uh, and, and problems uh, with religion and see what and how you would try to perhaps deconstruct them or help me get over them. Sure. Uh, I'm afraid they're long-standing and very deep. <laughs> therapy. We can do a therapy session. Well, I, I think a philosophical discourse might be more useful, but All right. I, I don't. Um, I hope I'm not into the therapy category yet. <laughs> maybe I need therapy. Maybe you can help me with that. No, I wouldn't say that you do, because if you did, I wouldn't have invited you here on the show. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I'm not the person qualified to conduct therapy anyway. Um, now, so here's my, my, my view in, in brief. In my view, uh, religion and science are absolutely mutually exclusive and diametrically opposed. And um, you can begin with the very foundation of what science is and what religion is. Now, science, I believe, starts with doubt. Doubting everything and, and looking for new ways of, of improving the old, coming up with new questions and new answers to the questions and the answers that were given to us by our parents, grandparents, and great-great-great-grandparents. Yeah. Science, on the other hand, is all based on faith. 
That's the starting action. In religion. Or, or, absolutely, yes. Religion is all based yeah. on faith. That's at least the way I perceive it. And everything builds up on that starting axiom that if you believe, you can build up everything from there. Now, religions and, religion and science have a, a long history. Um, and I would argue that historically speaking, religion has been very um, detrimental towards not only progress and science in general, but also humanity. And I would claim that Historically speaking, pretty much all major religions have committed substantial and in some cases absolutely horrendous crimes against not only science, but against humanity in general. And, and the reasons for that are, are many. Some of the, the reasons that I perceive them are ideological or dogmatic. Uh, some of the reasons, though, are going beyond religion itself, but they're more institutional. Uh, that is to say, to protect the religious institution as per se, and not only uh, the faith as a religion itself. Um, and uh, what 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 else should I say? I should say that uh, uh, religion has many claims that has been proven dubious or absolutely false uh, by science for as long as science has existed. Um, and I believe that, therefore, overall, in general, science is a much better guide for us to move forward, uh, both personally and collectively, than religion is. In fact, um, if you allow me, um, I, would, uh, I would like to make just two quotes from two of, of, of my favorite people, um, and uh, then I would pass the ball on to you. All right. So the first quote comes from uh, Friedrich Nietzsche, who said, I do not by any means know atheism as a result, even less as an event. It is a matter of course with me, from instinct. I am too inquisitive, too questionable, too exuberant to stand for any gross answers. God is a gross answer, an indelicacy against us thinkers. At bottom... Merely a gross prohibition for us. You shall not think. I have to say, this is very much how I feel often uh, when it comes uh, with respect to religion. Uh, and the other quote that I would like to make is the one from Carl Sagan, uh, who says, Science is more than a body of knowledge. It is a way of thinking, a way of skeptically interrogating the universe with a fine understanding of human fallibility. If we are not able to ask skeptical questions, to interrogate those who tell us that something is true, to be skeptical of those in authority, that's the doubt point that I was ringing below, before, then we are up for grabs for the next charlatan, political or religious, who comes rambling along. Yeah. So I, I think... Uh, that was the sort of the, the, the opening statement, if you will, and now you have the floor. All right, sounds good. Well, there, you, you made a lot of a lot of claims, and I and I hope we'll explore all of them to you know varying extents as we go along. Let, let me let me start by um, perhaps establishing some common ground. Um, one thing I'd like to point out. Which is, which may surprise you. It surprises a lot of people who are not religious. Uh, Frederick Nietzsche is also one of my favorite philosophers. 
And um, when he is criticizing God, I almost always agree with his criticisms of God. But at the same time, what he calls God and what I call God have some important differences. Frederick Nietzsche also talks about something he calls the Superman or the Overman. And that has much more in common with what I call God than um, what he calls God has in common with what I call God. So that, that may be something for us to explore as we kind of move along, that um, when we talk about God, we mean many things. And, um, you know, there, there's this idea that a lot of atheists express to Christians in particular. They say, well, you know, you Christians, you're atheists too regarding all these other gods. It's just this one more God that we're asking you to be consistent with and reject that one too, because then, you know, then you'd be like us. You're atheists too. Um, my, my response to that, uh, is that, you know, while that might be true of many Christians, it's not true of me because I'm an atheist toward no God. Why am I an atheist? So am I sitting here saying it that, you know, I, I'm this polytheist who, you know, I do I pray to Thor in the morning and then, you know, at noon I set my mat towards Mecca and pray to Allah. And in the evening, do I, you know, say a prayer um, to Jesus? Well, Yes and no, depending on what you understand all of those things to mean. And so we, we ought to explore that. What do we mean by God? And so many of the problems that arise in the communication between atheists and theists arise from not taking the time to understand what each other means by the claims that we are making. And, you know, both of us being um, philosophers or at least aspiring lovers of wisdom, that that you know that I would imagine that resonates with you as strongly as it resonates with me. That communication really starts with trying to understand what the other person means when they say something. So um, there's that. We need we need to be careful about what we mean when we talk about God. I Another personally th- just to, to 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 jump in here for a point to clarify. Yeah. First, I, I agree entirely with what you said that. We have to know what we mean. And that's why I personally advocate that people should educate themselves in all major religions, at least. Christianity, Judaism, uh, you know, Buddhism and Hinduism, uh, at the very least. Um, and, and, and so, and, and, you know, Christianity with, you know, being Catholicism, Orthodoxy, Mormonism, obviously, and all the other ones, uh, the other shades, or if I can, if I may call them like that. But for me personally, God is, as it said, omnipotent, uh, ever-present, all-knowing, and almighty. That the being. And, and also, quote-unquote, our creator. Yeah. Yeah, so we were, I, I was going to mention some additional things related to maybe religion and faith, but let's come back to those later while we're talking about God. Let's, let's start with, with that. So, you know, what is God? And, and, you, and you just defined it in terms of omnipotence omniscience, omni- uh, maybe you said omnipresence, I don't recall if you th- threw in that third omni. Almighty, all-knowing. Creator. A whole bunch of, a list of superlatives, right? And um, there, there's two ways that I that I personally would approach that. The first way that I would approach that is by just point blank saying, well, God for me is not a superlative. Um, that doesn't mean that I see no value in 
the descriptions that many people use that are phrased in terms of superlatives when describing God, um, there, there can be some value there. there. There can also be some detriments. But first of all, um, God for me personally is not a superlative. Um, when we talk about God in terms of knowledge, in terms of power, in terms of love, it's not necessary for me to do some kind of mental gymnastics and decide, you know, God has to be that greater than which nothing can be conceived. No, that's not required for me. Um, now, I know that that's an, that is for some Christians and some, you know, more philosophically inclined theists an important concept. I can more or less take it or leave it. Um, and a lot of that stems from some unique attributes of the kind of theology that I happen to have been raised with as a Mormon. But I don't want to focus uniquely on that today. You know, it would be nice to talk about it a little bit more broadly. But in, in full disclosure, the as a Mormon, I was raised with a, con, a concept of God as a being that became God. In Mormonism, God wasn't always God. Now, there, there, there are some complexities in this. You talk to different Mormons, you'll get some varying interpretations, of course. But Joseph Smith, the founder of Mormonism, taught quite plainly that God became God. God wasn't always God, and that, like God, we too should become God. So it becomes a very difficult thing to do to talk about omnipotence when you're talking about a God that evolved into Godhood. And that's the kind of God that concerns me most. Now, when I, when I talk with other theists that have more mainstream views of God, who are more concerned with omnipotence and omniscience and omnibenevolence and such, I don't tell them, well, no, that doesn't exist, or no, that's unimportant, because I actually don't think that those things are unimportant. I think that they are approximations in many ways. Um, they can be approximations in many ways with the kind of God um, that I care about, that inspires me. And uh, this ultimately leads to something very important about how I think of God and what I mean by God when I talk about God. And that is, God always has been and is at least a post-human projection. That's very important to understand, I think, when we talk about God. And, and in a sense, what I'm suggesting to you is I'm giving you a post-atheist description of God here. And, and it's important also to recognize that when I just defined God that way, that I said that God always has been and is at least. I'm not suggesting that God is not necessarily more than that. But what I'm saying is that when going back for thousands and thousands of years, humans have talked about God, what they've been talking about has been an extension or a negation of their humanity, of their concepts and categories, their virtues, their vices, extensions and negations of themselves, idealizations, projected out on the world, projected on others. And as they've done that projecting, those projections have affected them, the way they think, the way they talk, the way they act, and it's affected our communities, the way that our communities have formed relationships and interacted with each other 
whether whether and to, and to what extent we've cooperated within our communities and between communities. And sometimes those effects have been very negative. And sometimes those effects have been very positive. So also by talking about God in terms of projection, post-human projection, human extension, I'm also saying, I'm not, I'm also not saying that all of those projections are necessarily good, that all gods and all conceptions of God are necessarily good. I think it's quite clear as we study history that there's many gods and in particular understandings of gods, interpretations of gods, projections that have been very negative and others that have been positive. So I look at it more as a fact. When we look at it historically, there is this fact of projecting ourselves. And as we've done that, it's had various results. Some of those results we'll look back on and we'll say, that was a good thing. Some of them we'll look back on and we'll say, that was a bad thing. Yeah, we are anthropomorphizing the guts in a way, always, more or less. Inevitably, inevitably. We cannot do otherwise because we are human. You know, even in our attempt, you, you know, it's funny. I think of um, those who think of the most superlative gods, right? The most powerful, the most loving. And what are we doing there? Those may be the most extreme anthropomorphizations of God. And but it, but at the same time, you know, there's also negations of various limitations that we experience in ourselves. And and so all of that is informing. Now, I wanted to say one more thing before I before I shut up and let you say another word or two because I, I can see your head. You're just, there's a thousand things you want to say in response to this, um, and that is that some gods. Some of these post-human projections are more powerful than others. Some of them affect our actions more deeply than others. Um, and some of them become more realized concretely than others. And that over time, as these concepts of God evolve, and as our attempts to emulate these gods and realize these gods whether implicitly or explicitly because as we worship these gods some of the, some of us are implicitly shaping ourselves in their image others of us are explicitly doing it we think that worship should explicitly be an act of emulation and becoming like that god that we projected and then ultimately as this process of evolution of projections continues into the deep future increasingly empowered by technological means we should expect that the ultimate expression of this, the ultimate projection of God, is to realize the creation of that God in ourselves, to become that projection in reality. Now, there, what does that mean? Will we be literally superlative? No, I don't think that even means anything. That doesn't make sense to me to be literally superlative. But as an approximation, if we imagine a realized post-human projection, they might as well be omnipotent compared to you and me. They might as well be omniscient compared to you and me. They might as well be, as we might discuss about for later on, they might as well be omnibenevolent compared to you and me. Strictly, logically speaking, does that even make any sense to talk about? Maybe not. But the most powerful post-human projections, the most powerful gods, are those ultimately not only that cause their projectors, us, to realize them, but in turn move those realizers to perpetuate the creation. Thus, the most powerful creators 
are those that create more creators. The most powerful gods, the most powerful post-human projections are those that inspire and provoke us to realize them and then to perpetuate the process of realizing them again and perhaps again and again. So um, I hope that gives a little bit more um, texture and context for understanding what I mean when I talk about God. It's basically it embrace that all of this talk for thousands of years that we've we've had about what God is and what gods are, because we've talked about God in many different ways, that it, for me, when I look at them, I see approximations in them of things that I do care about and some things that I don't care about, but that through the evolution of these ideas over time, that we are approaching something that I care about a great deal and that I think Nietzsche talks about, that I think our movies about superheroes talk about that I think the gods of all the religions have talked about in various ways and to varying degrees of, of practical benefit or detriment, and that this is God being increasingly manifest in us to the point where we realize it eventually. Yeah, I think your own personal interpretation of the meaning of God, perhaps from my point of view, stands a little bit or maybe a lot different from the mainstream, what I would call the mainstream perception of what a divinity is. Uh, or at least that, that's how it looks for me. And, and in that sense, I think, you know, I, I can absolutely tolerate and, and accept the, the sort of the post-human element there. But for me, the key part of it is the human part. The post-human contains the human. Whereas I think the more mainstream interpretation of the meaning of God would focus on the divine part. And that would be the almighty, all-knowing, omnipresent, etc., etc. Um, now, let me broaden up the, the conversation a little bit more about uh, religion here, uh, going beyond God, and, 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 and just ask you a few quick questions, and maybe you can choose which ones to address and which ones not to. But you've mentioned that at certain times there have been positive outcome of the fact that people have embraced religion and God, and at sometimes there have been negative. Well, from my point of view, I would say that all, on the whole, the, the balance is in, in, in the deficit here. It's, it's a negative balance. I would like to claim that on the whole, you know, uh, religion is always many, many steps behind science and usually kicking and screaming against it uh, to the point that uh, usually it either excommunicates people or burns them at the stake. Uh, and therefore, science, in my view, always leads the way. Religion is always behind. Uh, also, um, you've mentioned that you were born to Mormon parents, but what if your parents were wrong? What, what, how do we know? Uh, and, and I mean, that, that's all progress, I believe, it comes from the doubt of the son or the daughter who doubts that the way that her parents are doing things is the best possible way. I mean, if we didn't doubt that, we would still be in the caves, in my view. Right, so everything comes from the point of saying, well, my grandfather was riding a donkey, and the donkey was good enough for Jesus, right? Therefore, it should be good enough for me. But you know what? I want to drive a, a Mustang, for example, right? Or I want to fly an airplane. And from that doubt, 
comes, I believe, all progress. So, so what, what if your parents were wrong? And I mean, if we just go by our parents, you know, I should be a hardcore Orthodox Christian probably. Um, actually, my situation is a little more tricky because one side of my family was communist and the other side was uh, Orthodox Christian, very strong Orthodox Christian. So when my parents actually got married, there was a lot of friction between the two parts of the family. So I've kind of seen both both ends. Um, and finally, I think it has to be, there has to be a test. There has to be a test for God, if you will, right? So say I was born an, an Orthodox Christian, uh, you were born a Mormon, somebody else was born a Jew, somebody else was born a Muslim and a Hindu. You have to be able to test something and say, okay, based on this external evidence, I accept or I deny these and these claims of these and of such and such divinity, and therefore I embrace it and endorse it, or I go to, to another one, until that test goes through all the major religions, and then you can conclusively claim that you have the right faith, if there's anything left in the end of the day. Like in my case, for example, there was nothing left, right? And that was kind of part of the reason why I did philosophy. But uh, So let me ask you this, perhaps all those kind of questions and, and things lead to that one issue. What is your test for God personally? How do you know that, you know, uh, Joseph Smith was the prophet and that Mormonism is the right way to go about it? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So let me, let me ask you a question to illuminate um, my answer to your question. Sure. And that question would be, how do you know that we can or should become a radically flourishing post-humanity. <laughs> okay, that's a very good question, and I see where you're coming from. Uh, so, yes, you're right, absolutely. Scientifically speaking, I cannot know for a fact something in the future like that. However, I can see that we can create flourishing communities here on earth right now following what I believe are the proper laws and, and, and usually both legal and otherwise and the laws of science which can bring us progress, which can bring us higher standard of living, longer life, more comfortable life and diminish suffering all across the world. So by extrapolating what I see right now in the present, based on all the factual evidence that I can go and get out there, and having, say, 2,000 years of, of evidence behind the progress that I believe humanity has made as a civilization, and, and based on the trends that I'm observing right now, I can claim that chances are that unless we destroy ourselves in a nuclear war or something else terrible like that, then we have the unique opportunity of reaching that post-humanity that we both entirely agree upon. Yeah. So there, there is reason to believe, is what you're saying. There's reason to trust in our post-human potential, but there's not an inevitability. There's not any conclusive proof. Agreed. That when I and we will someday enjoy 
radical creativity yeah. and immersive compassion. There's right? no guarantee, absolutely. That's how I see it. We trust in it. I <laughs> hope. And I, and I, and in fact, I'm, I'm actually kind of in a way hoping to work for it. And, and what I'm doing is in a way sort of to promote that, to create that discussion, to improve that awareness and in a small way contribute to it. Absolutely. And in fact, while we're on that subject, I admire the, what, the work you're doing to pursue that. And what you're doing in pursuing that, from my perspective, is the exercise of faith. <laughs> faith is. For some people, faith means irrationality. If, that, if that's what faith means, then I don't want anything to do with faith. I completely reject irrationality. Now, if faith means, on the other hand, a rationality or a hope or a trust in something that we aspire to, and not merely a passive hope or trust, not just this, I hope someday that we will have a radically flourishing community. No, it's a hope that expresses itself in action in making podcasts that motivate and provoke other people, for example, to engage in this very hard, very real, very tangible, concrete work to make that world to which we aspire. So far as I'm concerned, that is exactly what faith is, is this hope beyond what we can prove today in something that we value deeply. And that we don't value it for any reason that we can prove per se. We value it for aesthetic reasons or to use religious vocabulary, we value it for spiritual reasons. It provokes and motivates and inspires us, this vision that we have of what humanity ought to be. It, I'm afraid, though, that the way you're postulating faith kind of confuses it with science, and I respect that very much, but I think it confuses it with science, and the reason being is that, you know, faith has the established dogmas, the, the established can't break these rules, okay? Here are the rules written in stone or written on golden plates, handed down by God. So whatever you do, however you do it, can't touch this. This is the word of God. You cannot argue against it. You cannot do anything about it. This is how it was for eternity. This is how it's going to be for eternity. Now, science is absolutely against this. Science says, break all the rules. The rules of my father were great. And they worked well for him, but the rules for the young generation, and that's usually part of the, you know, intergenerational clash that always is inevitable, I think. You know, because young people want new rules, want to discover the world, and quite often discover better ways of doing things. And that's where we have progress. And, and that's why I'm very confused with, with your interpretations, because we kind of ag agree absolutely on what you say, but... You're replacing, in my view, the word religion with the word science. Okay. Yeah, fair enough. So let, let, let's explore why I'm doing that and see if there's any authenticity to it or if I'm being duplicitous. or. No, I, I don't think you're being duplicitous at all, personally. So you, when we look, let's, let's talk about just the Christian tradition more broadly than Mormonism. Mormons, we generally do identify as Christians, okay. and we look... Um, we look at the Bible, although not as infallible, we look at it as a source of inspiration. Um, and in the Bible, it talks about faith, of course, and what faith might be, what it is. And it expresses um, many times in the Bible 
this idea that faith is well one of my favorite passages for example is that faith without works is dead faith is something that we have to do it's not just believing in something it's doing something and then in another passage of the new testament for example you've got the um you've got paul in one of the epistles of paul writing about this idea that all things will fail including prophecies prophecies will fail all things will fail except one thing the only thing that will not fail according to paul writing in the new testament is charity or love, compassion. That is the only thing, according to Paul, that will not fail. And so, you know, that's an interesting idea, this idea that we perhaps ought to have an unwavering trust in perhaps only one thing, and that is, in Paul's expression, charity. So returning this to this idea that we were talking about a few moments ago, about trusting in a better world and a flourishing um, world, this post-human, beautiful post-human world, because there's, we can imagine negative post-human worlds as well, of course, but a, a, a positive post-human world. Um, should we doubt the possibility of that beautiful post-human world? Should we doubt the possibility? I'm not talking about the probability, because we should definitely be considering the risks, but we should we doubt completely should we become utterly skeptical no. of the possibility? Of no. A, and then let's talk about science, for example. We know we, we say, well, science is about doubt, and it certainly is. Doubt is an extremely important tool in science. But is it really about doubting everything at all times? Can science function without taking circumstantial positions? Fair enough from those as expressions of at least a circumstantial faith. And there may, is there not even some overriding, more a broader sense in which there's even an underlying assumption of the possibility of progress? If there's no underlying faith in progress or this or, at, at, you know, maybe this very primitive, basic interrelatedness between ideas um, that uniformity of experience across time and space is at least to some extent a practical assumption. Without at least assuming that amount of connectivity, science is a worthless project. I agree. I agree. But, but here's the thing, though. I think that science, uh, yes, it involves that, those leaps of faith. Just like, for example, when I'm waking up in the morning or when I'm going to bed, I'm not guaranteed 100% that I would wake up. You know, but I go to bed with the belief that I would wake up again tomorrow and, and tomorrow is another day, right? So we all make these leaps of faith. We cannot function without them. But when it comes, and yes, science is kind of a sequential process in which you build upon the shoulders of the giants that came before you, right? Um Though every once in a while there's a scientific revolution which abolishes much of what came before you. And it's like a reformation in a way, if you will. Uh, but, but here's the thing. The, the main idea for me with science is that you follow the evidence no matter where it takes you. And if the evidence takes you to suggest uh, that your starting hypothesis was entirely wrong, then you have absolutely no other choice but to discard that hypothesis and look for another one which would be in keeping with the evidence. And you keep repeating that process until 
you find that hypothesis. Whereas religion is reverse. You start with the hypothesis and then discriminatively you pick certain things which would support that thesis. And you never, that's rule number one, you never ever question the starting hypothesis. You never question the fact that Jesus was uh, the son of God or that Joseph Smith was a prophet or that your parents picked, or actually not your parents, but probably your great-grandparents who made the choice to become Mormons first probably, my guess is here, made the right decision for all of the coming generations. Yeah, so two things on that. First of all, with science, should we always follow where science leads? Let me give you an extreme example. What if science leads us to the point of determining that science itself doesn't work? What if that's the evidence that it eventually leads us to? Should we ignore all of the contextual benefits that we receive, even though maybe at some grand cosmic scale science is proven to be... I'm failing to comprehend that claim, honestly, personally. <laughs> so... Um, on spatial uniformity, logical consistency, um, non-contradiction. What if over time in our observations we find that those things don't always hold out across all times and places, across all of our experience? Should we discard science entirely? But science never makes generalized claims. I think they're all contextualized. That's why uh, you have the theory of relativity of Einstein, which means, which broadly speaking, says certain things hold true for certain context relative to certain other things. So within that context, but not pervasively ac across the universe or the multiverse. As long as we're understanding science to be doing that, I'm, I'm, I'm going in the same direction with you on science. And then flipping to the other side with um, religion, you, you say, well, religion starts with some unbreakable hypotheses, right, that we should never doubt. I recognize, first of all, this, um, that we need to say this, first of all, that's usually how religion is practiced, right? That's how we see it practiced. That's how we maybe have experienced personally practicing it. On the flip side, though, is it how religion should be practiced? Is it, for example, how maybe the great religious figures of history practiced religion? Is it really the example that they provided to us? You know, reflecting back on the, on the words that I referenced from Paul in the New Testament, Paul is pretty much basically saying that everything is going to fail. So by implication, everything should be doubted to some extent or another except one thing, and that's compassion. And, um, I would argue that if science ever leads you in your understanding of the evidence to reject compassion, that you should perhaps start questioning the value of science in that case. Um, I, I would have to, I would have to grant you that one, uh, as a, as a sort of a philo with, as someone who has background in philosophy with particular interest in ethics, I would have to say that, yes, I, I value ethics very much, and, and, and I, I can't see what kind of science would ever come up to such result, but if it comes to that moment, then I would have to doubt it personally. So I'll, I'll have to grant you that one. Yeah, and, le and let's look a little bit further. Let's look at Jesus, for example, the example of Jesus. Well, Jesus was born a Jew and lived and died a Jew. 
Um, he didn't leave his religion, although he had a very poor relation with many of the people in his religion. Did he doubt his religion? Did he doubt the dogmas of his day? Did he fight against them? Well, yes, he very clearly did. Now, did he, did he do it in, um, always obvious, just saying, I disagree with that ways, or did he do it through kind of the Microsoft and embrace ways? Well, it seems pretty clear from the text as we read it today, you know, to the extent that that may reflect any historical actions he took, I, I don't know. But it, based on the text, it seems like he was, um, he was quite, uh, cunning, or cunning might be the wrong word because that, that might suggest less than compassionate interest. Strategic. Strategic in the way that he went about his expressions of doubt that people were living their Jewish religion in the way that was best. And yet, if you look at the way he ended up, you would say, well, his strategy didn't come to too much in the end, perhaps, from his personal point of view, unless that was his goal to begin with, of course. And, you know, Christians would suggest that perhaps that was his goal. And and frankly, looking at the the history of religions broadly, there's... It would be very difficult to argue that any religion has been more um, more influential in human history than Christianity has been. So, you know, in some ways he was quite successful, um, with Paul's help, of course, and others. But uh, let, let's let's take this also to another religious figure that you've brought up, which is which is very pertinent to my own religious tradition, and that's Joseph Smith. Well, Joseph Smith. Um, when we look at the example of Joseph Smith, Mormonism started because Joseph Smith doubted Christianity. That's where he began, was with asking questions and not liking the answers he was getting from the other Christians of his day. And so, you know, as Joseph Smith recounts the story, because of those questions, that led him to seek more answers, and God eventually revealed and inspired additional answers to him. Um, and I think that we can follow this same set of, we can follow this same pattern as we look at all of the major religious figures throughout history. And Buddha being another very influential one that also fits this pattern. In each case, we see these major religious figures giving an example, not of passively embracing dogma, but of deeply questioning and not I think it's important that we recognize that not only were they deeply questioning, but they also went about their questioning in a way that wasn't merely um, hostile. It wasn't merely hostile. Now, there were certainly some more perhaps hostile expressions along the way, but there was something they were intending to do that they viewed, at least, and that many humans who have become their disciples over many thousands of years have viewed as being compassionate and constructive, even when they were disagreeing with the dogmas of their day. So I, I would completely agree with you that there is much in religion that tends toward the dogmatic, that tends toward the Pharisaic, that tends toward much that is quite, you know, quite, frankly, destructive and negative and dehumanizing and anti-humanistic and um, not good for where we are and where we need to go. But I'd also suggest that that's not the essence of religion, despite the fact that it happens quite regularly. There's also some good, and you know, you mentioned a little while ago, that you think that on the whole, the, the bad outweighs the good. We could discuss that 
more if, if we, you know, that's kind of one of those tit for tat type things that people. <laughs> I'll see your genocide and I'll raise you my genocide and I'll, you know, um, this one was done by religious people. This one was done by anti-religious. So just to kind of maybe to, unless you would really like to explore that in more detail, at least to temporarily skirt that issue and get to the end point of what I would say as a summary of that. I look at religion as a social technology, as an, as the application of aesthetics. In fact, maybe to define religion a little bit um, more succinctly about how I think of religion, I've talked about how I think of God. Religion is any practice that provokes communal strenuous mood. And when that strenuous mood is provoked for a community, communities do all sorts of things. And some of the things that they do are terrible things. We've seen that throughout history. We've also seen throughout history that communities will be provoked by that religious aesthetic, that applied aesthetic, to do wonderful things, very altruistic things. So when we talk about religion, I don't have, I don't have a, um, preconceived position that I have to take that it's all good or it's all bad. I, think of religion much like I think of technology. Technology is not all good or bad. It's what we do with the power of technology that matters. Likewise, with religion. Religion is not good or bad. It is powerful. It influences people in powerful ways. So what matters is, how do we use that power? Are we using it for good? Are we using it for evil? Are we using it to promote genocides? Are we using it to promote crusades? Are we using it to promote all kinds of negative hostility and picketing at funerals? Or are we using it to provoke humanity to achieve its potential as children of God to attain that sublime post-human state of being to which we aspire? If we're using it for that, if we're using the power of religion to provoke that, then I would say that we're using it the right way. I, I have to say I agree again with much of what you said. It's just that it, it's very hard to, to argue with you because um, you do have a very pro-scientific, pro-open-minded uh, um, views, I think. Uh, and, and also your interpretation of religion is not so st stiff and dogmatic. So it's yeah, and, and also you're pretty eloquent, so it's it's hard to debate those points. Uh, I mean, uh, on the other hand, it's very rewarding. Um, so anyway, uh, I, I I do agree with you that religion is a social technology, absolutely. Uh, and technology is not good or bad. It, as you said, and 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 my my future book uh, that I intend to be writing in January would be called The Magnifying Mirror or at least that's my working title, and that's precisely the biggest point of it, is that technology is a mirror because it merely reflects what we put in it. But it's also magnifying. Uh, it provides that incredible point of leverage that we have to really be careful about because if we put something good or something bad, it magnifies it infinitely to incredible degree, and, 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 and therefore the, re the effect is, is humongous or can be very powerful, as you just said. However, with that specific technology of religion, I also have the view that, uh, as Karl Marx put it, 
religion is opium for the people. Uh, and usually that's where the quote stops. But actually the important part for me is the part right after it, which says religion is the opium for, opium for the people because it makes people put up with things that normal rational people should never put up with. And, and, and yes, I agree that uh, usually the prophets are contrarians, right? They're in one way or another contrarian to the established dogmas of their day. But interestingly enough, to be able for this to aggregate around a religion, then the followers have to embrace that as the word of God. And, and just to give you one example how good people can end up doing evil things, um, and I hope that's okay by you, but um, let me just give you an example of, of Mormonism, right? Mormonism was persecuted in many places of the United States. There were people killed with their families in, you know, in Missouri, I think, in, in many other places. But then there came a moment in which perhaps Brigham Young, perhaps the people around him, ordered a massacre at Mountain Meadows, and then God-fearing good Mormons killed men, women, and children in some cases uh, because they believe that's the right thing to do and because they have that idea of perfect obedience, that is to say never question the, the, the people of higher authority in religious status terms. Yeah. Right? And, and, and that's a mere example among many which, you know, as you point out, all religions have exhibited, you know, the Crusades were bloodbaths uh, blood uh, from Christianity point of view. Uh, both across Europe, by the way, uh, Crusaders uh, passed by through Bulgaria many times, and they treated the local population as barbarians. So they killed, uh, raped, and, and burned everything on the way. Uh, they did equally, if not worse, when they were actually in the Holy Land. Uh, so... I think that's one of the, the crimes, you know, religion can be used as the easiest excuse to make one person kill another person. And, 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 and that includes women and children and, and the old and, and the most hopeless. And the people who do it are brainwashed to the point and to the degree that they think they're doing the work of God while doing such heinous crimes. And for me, you know, a scientist who, or an ethical person who really is brought up with the belief that one should question authority and ask the questions and answer in his own rationality as to the worthiness of the cause and the rightfulness of that justification. And I think if you have that attitude, you can prevent those crimes. I agree. And the examples you gave, I... I, I think are horrible. The one in particular with my own religious tradition, the massacre at Mountain Meadows is, is even far worse than you articulated it. If people go and look into the details, it's a very terrible moment in Mormon history. Um, that being said. But, but that also brings another point. Sorry to interrupt. But, uh, and that's the point that you brought last time during our discussion, which is to say having integrity in one's own belief, right? From the point of view of integrity, those Mormons were merely exhibiting perfect obedience to their leaders. So, just like perhaps like a soldier, con uh, you know, committing a war crime, following orders could be one type of an excuse. 
But that's why I, I make a horrible soldier. And by the way, when I was a soldier, I was both the most punished and the most awarded in my regiment because when it came to, you know, fulfilling tasks, I was excellent. When it came to obeying orders, I was absolutely horrendous. Uh, so I had serious issues with that. Um, but, but I think that that's important to prevent uh, crimes against humanity, whether you're a soldier or just a member of any religion. Yeah. Yeah. So the question we can ask ourselves then is, should we uh, – I don't even think it's possible. Let me rephrase it. I was going to say, should we try to get rid of religion? Um my answer being, of course, I don't think we we can. It's not the kind of thing that you can just decide, oh, we're going to get rid of religion. And not only that, I would argue that we shouldn't get rid of it, even if we could. And and why shouldn't we get rid of religion, even if we could? Well, first of all, the fact that we attach an aesthetic that motivates us to do terrible things to uh, you know a particular religion does not necessitate that all aesthetics will be used to motivate us to do terrible things. We can do many things with technology. For example, every one of the, every one of the things we've talked about with the genocides, with the massacre at Mountain Meadows, the Crusades, every one of those involved the application of non-social technologies as well. Absolutely. Okay. So every, every example we can give of the evil of of social technologies such as religion will also be examples of the application of the much more rudimentary technology. So why does it matter then? You know, if religion does all of these terrible things, should we just get rid of the risk? Right? Should we just get rid of the risk because it's too risky? Well, that's kind of the Luddite view on, on religion, right? Um, or and if I can actually defend religion here for a while, you know, I've been pretty harsh on it, but there are benefits to it too, or there have been some benefits to it too, um, and, and and it it comes with a very rich uh, cultural uh, uh, tradition, uh, which is highly enriching. Uh, I think it was Arthur Schopenhauer who said that Christianity is more or less Platonism for the masses. So if you follow the ancient Greek ethics from Plato onwards, you would see much of it. Uh, in the in the Christian ethics, not all of it, but much of it, uh, and so in that sense, I think it's it's philosophically and culturally enriching. And I do believe that you know we shouldn't be complete extremist atheists like I may have been coming out up to, up to now. Um, but we should always leave a little doubt to doubt our own doubt in the end of the day too. Um, and, and so I wouldn't advocate for the complete eradication of religion. I would advocate instead more education in the variety of religions. So if you're born a Catholic, I would say to Catholic parents, I would say go study Islam, for example, right? If you're born a Jew, I would also say go study Islam, right? And this, I believe, is it's kind of like what me and you are doing now in, in a way, right? It's creating that bridge, that common ground based on which you can actually build upon the future afterwards. And it, 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 it creates those common points of reference and ability for both or for all of us to grow and, and move forward by picking and choosing the best from the past, not you know, denying it all in a single sweep of a movement, but by rationally 
and and smartly and strategically choosing the best and and running along with it. Yeah, I completely agree. And uh, along those lines, I I would never want anybody listening to this podcast to think that I would defend uh, dogmatic or fundamentalist religion. On the same token, nor would I want them to think that I would defend dogmatic or fundamentalist anti-religion. There, there, pre, there presents, there is presented to us by religion, like any other technology, an opportunity. And we can be Luddites about that opportunity, or we can embrace the opportunity and try to mitigate the risks and pursue the opportunity. And I would argue that for those of us who aspire to a radically flourishing post-human future, that we would require nothing less than the power of religion to provoke us, motivate us, and motivate and provoke those around us to contribute to the pursuit of that vision. And so ideally, what we would figure out a way to do is to use religion, not in a pre-secular way, that it may be dogmatic or pharisaic, but to use religion in a post-secular way that acknowledges the concerns, the legitimate concerns that have been brought to our attention by the secular world, by the secular changes that have happened in the world. Acknowledge them and build on them, but not give up the power of religion, the power of aesthetics, the power of aesthetics applied in the most provocative ways. Because before us, I, I would suggest that particularly to those of us who look at things like the technological singularity or the challenges presented by various transhuman, um, transhumanist related technologies, we have risks ahead of us that are nothing short of globally catastrophic, if not worse. And it may be that nothing short of the greatest of our efforts motivated and provoked by the greatest of aspirations, which stem from aesthetic sensibilities, not from proofs, may be required to help us navigate and, fa and face up to those challenges and surmount them and to attain what we hope for. So I'd suggest that if, if we can figure out ways, and I think we're evolving toward doing it, if we can figure out ways of using the power of religion constructively, to motivate each other towards compassion and towards creativity rather than the very possible motivation towards dogmatism and towards hatred and intergroup fighting. If we can use it in the right ways, it may be what can help us achieve that positive future that we're hoping for better than anything else can. And in fact, as we talked about last time we were discussing in the previous podcast, I think there are, as I define religion, some very clearly religious sensibilities to singularitarianism and to transhumanism. I would argue that not in pre-secular terms. In pre-secular terms, they're not religious. But if you understand religious, if you understand religion in post-secular terms, then I think it becomes rather non-controversial to say that singularitarianism and transhumanism are post-secular religions. And I would not want to come out in favor of arguing for a return to pre-secular religion, but I do want to be perceived as an advocate for post-secular religion. Uh, I, I actually think that this might be a good point for us to, to call it a day. 
because you said uh, a number of uh, very good things there, and I think they would provide a good point where we can stop and ponder and think about both what you just said and the implications for the future. So, Lincoln Cannon, I'd like to thank you for uh, being on Singularity One-on-One -on -one again and uh, being so gracious of allowing me to um, attack both yours and religion in general. <laughs> I wouldn't have it any other way, Nicola. It's the right way. So thank you very much for having me with you. Thank you. The pleasure was mine, Lincoln. Thank you.